HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Okay, we're here with uh, the Heritage Farm Report this Sunday, and we're happy to welcome Christopher Nicholson of the Iliama Fish Company, whose family works out of Bristol Bay, Alaska. How are you doing today, Christopher? Oh, great. Good to hear your voice, Heather. Nice to hear you as well. I'm going to start off with our first question and go ahead with what is the history of your fishery? Great. Um, the Bristol Bay, Alaska has been fished for uh, sockeye salmon and about and four other species of salmon for probably about 2,000 years, possibly longer. So it's a, there's a good <laughs> history of catching fish in Bristol Bay. Definitely. That's a very long time. And how did you become connected to this part of the world? Uh, my mother is a native Alaskan woman. She is um, uh, an Athabascan woman, member of uh, the Denina Nation there. And her family has been fishing there for a couple of hundred years. And they started fishing in uh, uh, maybe a slightly more modern way uh, around 1900. And the more modern way, exact, what, what would the more modern way be? Um, before that, people used fish traps and um, something kind of like a water wheel to uh, uh, pull fish out of the water. And then sometimes little uh, kind of... Um, little canals and dikes that would help uh, kind of direct the fish to shallow pools where you could pull them out. And around the turn of the century, people started to use um, boats and gill nets uh, more regularly. And since then, kind of um, in, a, in a steady but um, small way, people have continued to fish uh, the sockeye salmon fishery there with uh, gill nets. And that's how you're currently doing it these days, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Um, and why, what would you say, why are fishing and fisher people so important? Um, there's a, uh, um, a symbiotic relationship, a, a mutually beneficial biologic relationship between the humans that inhabit uh, the base of the um, Kenai Peninsula there, that's where Bristol Bay is located in Alaska, and the fish themselves. Um, there's uh, been always just enough people there and enough fish to maintain this um, pretty remarkable relationship between the people who catch the fish when they're going, uh, returning from their uh, several year uh, food foraging migration in the cold Pacific waters there and the people who catch them as they're returning. The, the, my family, for example, for 
um, generations we've uh, caught a certain species of salmon and dried it and fed it to keep our dogs uh, sledding and to keep our uh, <laughs> ourselves uh, eating well throughout the uh, winters and and what else can I say? It's just, it's, it's really, uh, it's pretty wonderful how uh, rich the fishery is and how well it supported the people there for many, many years. That sounds like a great answer. And now, if you could write one fishing issue into law, what would that be? Wow. <sighs> this may sound like a gigantically Alaskan, megalomaniacal thing to say, but I'd like uh, to um, encourage the rest of the U.S., to um, employ the kind of protection that Alaska has employed for its fish since it became a state. When Alaska joined the Union in 1959, they uh, took control of their fisheries from um, the federal government. Mm -hmm. They began controlling them as a state, and they ex ex uh, explicitly wrote into their constitution that fish had to be conserved and used um, as a sustainable resource. And I, if there was one uh, thing that I could write into law, I wish that every other state had a, a similar explicit protection for fish. That sounds great as well. Unfortunately, we can't go back in time and rewrite the laws of uh, you know, joining <laughs> the states, but maybe there is some way we could incorporate that into new laws for sure. Um, who are the members of your production chain that you interact with that are most important to your survival? When I say, just to clarify, we're thinking of members like other, other humans and other animals, or just humans, or both. I would say both. I mean, it's a circle of life, and then it's a you know, um, the infrastructure that allows what your um, fish company does to keep you alive as a um, you know a fishery. Great. I guess the uh, uh, foremost uh, it would be my family. Um, we fish together. Um, we built. Um, the place where we fish has no electricity and no running water, um, no television, of course, and uh, no uh, central power. There are also no roads, so we um, uh, move to, uh, back and forth in between places by boat or by walking or, or by airplane. So um, first and foremost, uh, the people who are important in the chain are my uh, family and fellow fisher people. You, when you're in such a rural location, it's imperative that you rely on your neighbors and that you have good relationships with them and that you have good relationships with your family because you're going to need them. That's definitely true. Okay, and next, what is the DNA that makes up the foundation for your fishery? That's a great question. Can I ask for just one little bit of detail there about um, what kind of DNA we're thinking of in terms of the... Uh, how do we catch what we catch, or um, can you just unpack that for me a tiny little bit? Yeah, I mean, basically, it's left to your own interpretation. It's DNA, it's foundation, it's, you know, what really is the basis of of the salmon that you catch, your sockeye, for example. Great. Um, I hope it doesn't sound like too oblique an answer, but I think um, clean water, um, a clean watershed, and uh, continued um, kind of strategic support for uh, small-scale fishing that allows for a sustainable fishery. So when I think about what, what makes up the foundation, it's the same thing that preserves it. And I guess that the thing that preserves it is um, a comprehensive sustainability. And even in a place like Alaska, where you have explicit protection in the Constitution for fish as a fisher person, 
um, you always have to make sure to let your legislators and let your fellows and let uh, people in the you know the larger industry that's fishing um, know how important it is to stress sustainability and then sometimes at the cost of um, it sometimes comes at great financial cost but it's important if the fishery itself if the life of the thing itself and of the people who are part of it um, are to continue you uh, just have to keep that uh, foremost as I think a lot of people that are doing things to really preserve sustainability sometimes have to you know lose a little at first to make sure that they're um, you know in your case fish are being preserved and your waters are being preserved to the best that they possibly can be so that makes perfect sense and I would um, then ask what are the taste profiles unique to the fish that you catch um, I think that what makes uh, Bristol Bay sockeye salmon from the Quijack district that's where my cousins and I fish together there um, to me the thing that makes them unique uh, first of all the color it's a, just a beautiful um, uh, kind of uh, I describe it as a, an electric vermilion mm-hmm. or a, a kind of a, a glowing uh, scarlet orange the color of the fish is just it's really beautiful. So it affects how you taste it. When you see something that looks so pretty, the way you interpret the taste is is deeply affected. So starting with the color, and then to me it reminds me there's um, kind of a firm uh, fleshiness uh, to the fish itself that uh, reminds me of um, ripe uh, tomatoes in the summer. Hmm. And it has a, it's just slightly uh, sweet, and there's always this um, delicate, briny aroma that, uh, that accompanies it. So if I can, if that's kind of a snapshot of it. That's a great detailed description. And those colors that you described in the beginning sound like something I'd love to paint my kitchen. <laughs> so very <All> nice. Right. <laughs> um, what is your five or ten year plan, and do you have one? Let's see. I'll, I'll try to answer that as comprehensively as I can. A couple of years ago, starting, I guess, five years ago, my cousins and I uh, banded together to um, create this little company, Iliamna Fish Company. And it was, um, in truth, the brilliant vision of my cousin, Reed. And he wrangled um, his two other cousins. I'm one of the two. And uh, just excited us about the possibility of selling our fish ourselves and of working directly with people who might buy our fish, whether they're um, chefs or um, just individuals or people who are involved in, uh, and interested in uh, buying sustainable uh, fish of any kind. So uh, starting five, five years ago, we formed that little company and I think we hope in another uh, five years to um, grow in a way that um, matches the sustainability of the fishery. So if I can try and sum that up, I hope that um, in uh, five years we've um, continued and uh, uh, kind of, I can't say the word, thanks for being patient with me, I hope that we have... uh, uh, (laughs) brought along the people who've uh, come with us this far and that they're still with us in another five years. Well, that's that's really, that's nice. And it's always nice to have less turnover. That way you can keep the uh, tradition of everything you've all taught yourselves and learned while you're working together alive. 
Yes, um, ma'am. Exactly. I would next ask, what tools are most useful for you to overcome nature's obstacles? Great. Um, since we're on the open water, mm-hmm. um, it's <laughs> life jackets are blasted important. I'm trying to uh, teach myself to be more responsible about wearing them. So that's mm-hmm. one thing. Yes. Um, uh, making sure that my boat is sound, checking it regularly. No holes. Um, where we fish, we have the third highest tides in the world. So the water level changes um, in the space of four hours. Um, it may change from a negative four feet. Uh, that's uh, sea level, to some 21 or 22 feet. So you could have 26 feet of water changing hands in four hours. And if you have a little bit of wind and a little bit of wave action, it can make for some pretty exciting seas. Do you ever have motion sickness? Is there anything you do about that? Oh, I've been so fortunate. I, wow. I, I haven't, I'm so glad that I haven't had to struggle with that. I've been a little green once or twice, but I've never, um, I've, I have not yet lost my lunch. They but call that having sea legs, right? Is that what that is? That phrase, yeah. sea legs? I guess you've got them. Yes, ma'am. The ocean is stronger than me. It's still, the verdict's still out. I could still get sick, but I haven't yet. All so. right. Well, I'll knock on wood for you then. <laughs> How will changing global weather patterns affect the fish you catch? Um, mysteriously, um, in, a, in a word, uh, fish, um, Pacific salmon, sockeye salmon in particular, um, feed, the generic term is uh, phytoplankton. They feed on uh, microscopic uh, plankton. Mm-hmm. And changing global weather patterns uh, have a way of uh, moving around kind of blooms, and some biologists refer to them plankton blooms, or um, kind of congregations of plankton to different places. So um, changing weather patterns um, have a way of either moving some blooms to different places or, you know, knocking some blooms out altogether. And that um, causes the fish to um, make different choices in the places they'll migrate to and how they'll follow food. And it also uh, causes the fish to make different choices about when they'll return to their, um, to their natal... Uh, yeah. Yeah, when they'll return, sorry. So the kind of the timing of runs is affected by uh, global uh, patterns. Now, is there something that you know because you've been doing this or, you know, this is a particular to your trade that allows you to somehow track where these fish go? Or is that a secret that only you hold the key to? Or is... You know, actually, you know what's a secret that really only the fish hold the key to? <laughs> Bless their hearts. But, they, um, you know, they, it's um, anywhere, depending on, depending upon the fish, but the fish that um, return to the river system where I fish and to the lake that I uh, um, is kind of the terminal headwaters of the place where I fish, they might migrate 400 or 1,200 miles, and they'll, they'll um, be following food and following stars, I think. And where they go is a mystery to me. And how they uh, also, um, the way that they choose to come back to the place uh, where I catch them um, it's really amazing. Like you, I might have a neighbor who's only a mile away from me who will just catch truckloads mm-hmm. of fish, and and I I won't catch them at all. And then another day I might catch a you know truckloads of fish, and my poor neighbor is just um, with an empty net. So they're mysterious guys. And luckily, because you guys are neighbors and I guess friends, do you guys share the catch every once in a while? You in that uh, in that sense. Um, 
I, I think we sh- we celebrate with one another when we catch because <laughs> we know that more fish are coming. Exactly. But yeah, I guess each person has to kind of uh, take his own net. But with my cousins and I, we do share uh, we we do share our fish a lot. So. Definitely didn't know if neighbor was also a word for competitor in a sense because you guys are sharing like the same watershed. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. That's true. Yep. That's okay. True. Um, so what about your boat, if anything, keeps you up at night? <clears throat> Gracious, a lot of things. <laughs> well, but, I hope it doesn't um, keep you up too many nights. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly, if I'm not on it and uh, it's a stormy night, I, I'm often kept up um, thinking about whether or not my anchor is really holding. Or sometimes, if it's really stormy and I've been responsible enough to set more than one anchor, if both those anchors are holding. (laughs) (laughs) So even though you put two anchors in, you're still up. Well, you don't want to wake up to no boat in the morning. Oh, terrible. (laughs) A terrible thing. (laughs) Um, Who would you, how how does technology hurt or help your fishery? Um, From a fishing standpoint, um, but the technology of a net is a, pretty significant development in the fishery. Mm-hmm. So that's allowed uh, people like me, as I said at the very beginning of the interview, starting around the turn of the century when people started to use gill nets um, more than a little bit in Bristol Bay, that's allowed uh, us to catch a lot more fish um, in a single boat. So that the technology of the net is a significant development. Um, Starting in the early 60s, people began to use, um, people were mostly sailing in the bay up until that point, um, sailing and catching fish. And starting in the early 60s, people started to use uh, outboard motors. Mm -hmm. So uh, being able to navigate um, more easily with an outboard motor is a a development. Help you get Um, around faster at the same time? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're they're tiny little, the boats that we fish in are tiny. Um, They're, you know, 22 foot vessels are just skiffs and the motors we're using i just use a <laughs> i use a 25 horsepower motor it's you know it's like a putter it's it's ridiculous <laughs> but it is it does save you a little bit of energy that uh, you might have spent sailing or tacking or shifting a boom from side to side so that's a significant development that definitely is yeah let me think uh, i'll try and uh, keep it quick i can think nope i'll stop i'll let you you speak um i would love to ask what interaction does your fishery have with wildlife you know Quite a bit. I'm I the kind of fishing that I do in my little skiff is called set netting, mm-hmm. and that means it's it's a um, what I would describe as a shore-based fishery. And when I say that, I'm always trying to keep my net in the shallowest water. So I kind of hug the shoreline all the time when I'm fishing, mm-hmm. and um, I often have to. Um, uh, be cautious for bears, which are just as interested in the fish as I am. Yes, certainly. Uh, yep, or or moose, um, which aren't interested in fish, but they're interested in me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I keep track of caribou just because I think they're delicious. And then uh, otters and seals um, treat my net like a salad bar, and I'm, I'm glad they get to have that uh, kind of uh, browse and nibble snack time. That's amazing. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of a lot of wildlife, and I, I watch uh, the terns um, and the gulls and the cormorants kind of uh, follow in my wake when I'm um, if I'm driving my boat from you know a couple miles. I, I like to see them uh, kind of oscillating and bobbing up above me. Well, what is the highest high and lowest low you've had on your boat? And I'm not talking about sea levels here. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Uh, the lowest low. 
Um, I swamped my boat about uh, nine years ago. Oh. And that's uh, where the, I didn't sink it, but I was, as I said, it's kind of a shore-based fishery, so I hug the shore when I'm fishing. Right. And sometimes if it's really wavy, you're, you know, you can't, um, you just can't keep your boat away from the shore. And this uh, one uh, July evening, it was just big, big waves, like uh, 10, 12-foot breakers just slammed me onto the shore and filled my boat full of water. And I <laughs> had a net uh, full of fish that was still out in the water that I couldn't get. And I filled my boat and I sucked my motor. And I also I pulled out my wrist at the same time. Uh, uh, they, they didn't recover for about four months, so that was the lowest low. <laughs> yeah, I would say. Um, and then my last question to you is, what do you consider to be American food? American food? That is such a good question. I should have an equally eloquent answer to your question. Um, I'll try and think uh, what I could answer from my perspective. I don't know if I can answer since America is such a vast place. Um, But um, where I live, um, or where I'm from and where I fish from, uh, it's... I'm excited by uh, uh, Pacific fish and they're... um, that they are unique uh, just to the uh, western uh, states of uh, the U.S. And it's cool that uh, in the U.S. we get to uh, eat indigenous uh, uh, berries and uh, indigenous animals. And um, gracious, that's too generic of an answer. I'm sorry. No, but it's what's in your own backyard. Yeah, that, that, that's, the, that's a good summation, Heather. The, I, for me, it's uh, what's in my backyard. Exactly. I like other people's America, too. I like to visit their America and taste their food. So Exactly. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great interview and a pleasure speaking with you. And um, let's do it again soon. Thanks so much, Heather. Hope you have a good afternoon. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi. Welcome to the Heritage Radio Network. We're broadcasting here from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And we're very excited to have Danny Williamson of Good Shepherd Turkey Ranch in Lindsburg, Kansas, with us for our farm report this week. And we'll be asking Danny about 20 questions. And um, Danny, it's very nice to have you here on the farm report. Thank you for thank you for coming. Well, thanks for inviting me on. So just to introduce yourself a little bit to our audience, why don't you talk to us about what it means to be a grandmaster breeder? of the dark Brahma chicken and the white call duck? Uh, what that means is uh, I'm a member, I'm a lifetime member of the American Poultry Association. And to become a, uh, a grandmaster breeder, you have to have so many wins at so many different shows uh, to get the award. Uh, I've had enough wins in both my uh, large dark Brahmas and my white call ducks to get those awards. Uh, there are other people that have those, but I am happy to say that I'm also a grandmaster breeder of black turkeys, and I am the only one, uh, only APA member that has that distinction at this point in time. And what kind of criteria does a bird have to have to meet to be considered um, grandmaster bred, so to speak? Uh, the American Poultry Association has a standards of perfection, uh, just like the American Kennel Club or the American Fat, or the American cat fancy, uh, to what the bird is supposed to look like. Uh, 
there's a criteria for color, confirmation, eye color, leg color, body shape, and everything. And the birds are judged by the standards, and the bird that has the better standard uh, or closer to the standard will eventually end up winning and getting you getting the exhibitor the point. So your birds could be considered the equivalent of a best in show. Yes, I've won uh, quite a few best in shows, and I've had reserve of shows also. So. Wow. Well, congratulations. We can certainly tell from the taste when we eat your turkeys at Thanksgiving. Thank you. Uh, a lot of hard work goes into them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so tell us a little bit about the history of your land. Uh, this is an old farmstead that I live on now. Uh, the, the farmhouse that used to be here uh, was built uh, right around 1912. It was a family farm. They farmed the area right around here, and when the father passed away, uh, they had to end up uh, leaving the farmland uh, because the women couldn't take care of it. So it changed uh, It changed hands several times, and then uh, about uh, eight years ago, uh, me and my partner bought the land, and actually part of his land uh, connected to this land, so we were able to put back the quarter section back as a whole quarter section again. Uh, and then we looked at uh, trying to rebuild the farmhouse, and it was just too far in decay, so uh, we tore it down and, and, and built our own house here now. And how did you become connected to this part of the world? Uh, I was uh, born, raised, lived my entire life in the state of Kansas. Uh, never lived outside of, out of Kansas. Uh, I guess I just have the Kansas blood in me. Uh, it's a little bit hard to get away from this area once you get that farm blood in you. Uh-huh. And speaking of farm blood, why do you think farming and farmers are important in this country? Uh, probably the biggest thing is, is uh, farmers feed the world. Uh, without farmers, you wouldn't have bread on your table. You wouldn't have milk in your refrigerator. Uh, there would be nothing for you to eat unless you grew it yourself. And uh, in the larger cities, that's almost impossible for people to grow their own food. So that's why farming is so important, because we Farmers do feed the world, and a lot of times the farmers are really taken granted of. Okay. If you could write one farm issue into law, what would it be? Uh, I would actually like to see farmers get better tax breaks. Uh, you know, we have a lot of farmers around here that uh, put in 16-hour days. Uh, blood, sweat, and tears go into their crops or their livestock, uh, they put as much hard work and effort into their product uh, as some top CEOs get, and or you know as much effort into as that. And uh, a lot of times they don't make very much money during the year. And there are there are years where a farmer will actually lose money. Uh, they will go in the hole trying to grow their crops or their livestock. So you know I think it's I think it's very important that people understand how important farmers are and how hard uh, it is for small farmers to make it nowadays. Mm -hmm. And uh, who are the members of your production chain that you interact with and that are most important to your survival? Uh, there are probably two that are most important to us. Probably one of the most important to Good Shepherd Turkey Ranch is our growers. Uh, Frank and I have been doing this for a little bit over six years now, and uh, we, we simply don't have the resources to raise all the tur turkeys, chickens, ducks, and geese. So we have gone out and found growers to grow some of the, the birds for us. 
without those growers, we wouldn't be able to do this. And the other part of the production chain would be our buyers. Uh, if we weren't able to sell the product, uh, you know, there's no reason to uh, to grow them. So. Mm-hmm. And of course, you're talking about Frank Reese, who many people on the air right now, whose turkeys, whose turkeys, many people who are listening have have tasted here over Thanksgiving, and. Um, what is the DNA that makes up the foundation for your food? Uh, probably our food is different uh, simply because uh, our genetics go back to the uh, 1920s and 1930s uh, when every farm had uh, chickens on it. Uh, that was one way they survived. They grew their own, they raised their own chickens, uh, they grew them up, they processed them themselves, and they put them in their freezer for winter and they ate. And they also had egg production coming from those chickens also. So, you know, ours are the same genetics that were way, you know, back in that time that everybody used to survive to make a living off of. And what are the taste profiles for these turkeys? Uh, the, the taste on ours are going to be a much richer flavor. Um, you know, when a turkey is able to grow naturally and run and fly and eat grass and eat bugs and, uh, and have a very low stress level, uh, it all uh, goes over into the flavor of the bird. Uh, it's a rich flavor. Uh, the dark meat is darker. The white meat is actually uh, darker than the white meat on a commercial turkey. So, which makes it juicier? Yes, which makes, makes it much juicier. Plus, all our turkeys also have a thinner layer of fat uh, than a commercial bird would have. So you don't have as much fat on your bird. Mm-hmm. Now, when you talk about stress levels, what, what, what does that mean in a bird, and how does that affect the taste? Uh, just like uh, human beings, you know, when you're stressed out, uh, you don't feel very good. Uh, so we try to keep the stress levels on our turkeys as low as possible so they do feel good and so they can eat. And so they do grow naturally. Uh, they grow at a, a natural pace, and they're not forced to grow faster. Okay, now how would a bird get stressed? Uh, there's lots of ways a bird can get stressed. Uh, if they're too confined uh, with other birds, uh, there's, there's fighting going on amongst, amongst them, and if a bird can't get away from them, uh, they're going to feel very stressed. Uh, another thing is, is weather. Uh, you know, with our turkeys being raised uh, free range, uh, we do have some weather issues, so we make sure our birds can get out of the rain, get out of the snow, and can feel comfortable at all times. So you're saying the, the, the well-being of a turkey basically affects the end product even after slaughter? Yes, it does. Okay. And um, what's the five- or ten-year plan for the farm? Uh, m- my five-year plan is just to get to the f- five years and not lose my sanity. <laughs> uh, Good Shepherd is, uh, has grown so fast over the past three or four years that it's been difficult for Frank and I to keep up with it. And uh, we still continue to grow, so uh, you know we're just trying to keep up with it and 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 do the best we can, and to make sure that the animals, uh, our birds, are treated uh, with respect that they uh, they that you know the respect that they are intended to have. Uh, as far as the ten-year plan, uh, I would like to uh, start looking at retirement in ten years. Uh, <laughs> I have seen. Uh, in this area, a lot of farmers who have uh, literally farmed until the day they died. Uh, 
they did not get a chance to uh, sit back and enjoy life. Uh, so that's why it's very important to me that uh, you know I can look at trying to retire a little bit early just so I can sit around it and enjoy life for a while. Enjoy the fruits of your labor. That's right. How will changing global weather patterns affect the turkeys, do you think, or do you think they will at all? Um, in the state of Kansas, uh, we haven't really seen a, lo- a lot of global, global change, um, but we do have wetter wets and a little drier dries. Uh, probably the hardest thing is, is when we get the drier dries, you know, the dry, hot heat, um, it makes it very difficult for the grass to grow. And if the grass isn't growing, there's not as much grass for the, for the birds to eat and to forage on. Uh, and then during the rainy, rainy times, you know, when it's rainy, the birds don't want to go out and stand in the rain, so they kind of stand around in their, in their uh, coops. So. Mm-hmm. And what, what tools do you think will, will be most useful for you to overcome any obstacles that nature does pose? Uh, probably the biggest one is patience. Uh, you know, you really can't fight nature. I, if it's going to rain, it's going to rain. If it's going to snow, it's going to snow. Uh, you just have to have the patience to get out there and, and do the work and, and, and take your time and make sure the birds are, are doing good. Uh, you know, we've gone from one day, 74 degrees, to three days later having eight inches of snow. Huh. So the, the weather changes in Kansas dr- drastically overnight. So, you know, it's just you just got to have patience to get through all that. And how, what kind of technologies have you embraced, and how have they hurt or helped your farm? How have they hurt or helped your farm? Uh, the technologies nowadays, uh, you know, customers can get a hold of me on my cell phone whenever I, wherever I am. Uh, you know, if I'm driving down the road and I have somebody call me, I can answer it and, you know, answer the questions instead of, coming home and getting, you know, 40 questions that I have to call back. So that has made it, that's made it very much more easy to deal with because uh, I can answer questions at that moment. Uh, the drawback on that is people can get a hold of me any time, night or day. So, <laughs> so, you know, I'll get phone calls at 9.30 at night, you know, when I'm trying to wind down and everything. So uh, probably the biggest drawback on technology is, is trying to, uh, technical everything to death. Uh, you know, we have people that look at incubation and hatching, and they say, well, the egg needs to be held at 98.65 degrees. You know, and it, it, it comes to a point where you just got to let some technology go and just and, and do what your gut feeling tells you to do. Okay. Well, certainly your gut feeling seems to be working. Um, who are your top buyers? Uh, our top buyers, are, uh, one of them is Heritage Food USA. They have been with us since the very beginning. Uh, uh, we have really enjoyed working with them. Uh, we have several other buyers, uh, Slanker's Grass-Fed Meats, uh, Dean and DeLuca, and then we have some other smaller buyers. Uh, but probably our biggest buyers are our customers, uh, and we know that without our customers, we would not have a company. So that's why our customers are, are very important to us. And just to wrap up here, do you see in the future a turn away from commercial turkey production, and do you see more farms picking up the breeds that you guys grow and more consumers turning their attention to them? And do you see the trend that you've begun flourishing? Uh, 
we do see we do see a lot more people going going to raise the backyard flocks of turkeys or the small flocks of turkeys to take to market. Uh, the only problem with this is, uh, you know, it takes so much longer to grow the turkeys. Uh, it takes so much more acreage to grow the turkeys that I don't see, I don't see the commercial turkeys going away completely. Uh, I think what's going to happen in the future is the commercial turkeys are going to be, are are going to start being tr- treated more humanely, mm-hmm. uh, so they do grow better and and they they, they do have a better life. Uh, you know. We can't raise all the turkeys to feed the world. Uh, there's just no way. And some of, sometimes the factory farming is 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 needed. Uh, but in a way, um, they could treat the animals with much more respect and, and give them free range to the outdoors, and you know, open up the buildings and and, get, and let them get fresh air and, and sunlight. Okay. And if you had to relocate your farm, where would you go? Uh, that's rather difficult because, like I said, I've only lived in Kansas. So uh, if, I re- if I had to relocate my farm, it would probably be to Colorado. Uh, I just I really enjoy the mountains. Uh, I've, I've, for some reason, I've had a love affair with the mountains. Uh, if I just had to relocate myself and I wasn't able to take my farm, I would probably relocate myself to Hawaii because I really enjoy the tropics <laughs> and the ocean and the beach. So, And is Colorado's environment hospitable to the kind of birds you raise, or would that be...? It, it actually is. Uh, the biggest difficult, difficulty in Colorado uh, is uh, sometimes some uh, precipitation. If you don't get enough moisture, uh, it doesn't allow the grasses to grow. So. Mm-hmm. Well, we're certainly very thankful that you joined us here on HRN. That was a really interesting interview, and I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who enjoy your turkeys every Thanksgiving and who can really tell the difference in quality. Well, I appreciate you having me uh, come on and answer some questions, and hopefully uh, if there are any questions out there that uh, they'll contact either Heritage Foods or us or you guys and uh, get the questions, and we'll try to get them answered. Well, hopefully this will be the first of many times that you that you come on the air with us. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks, Mr. Williamson. Have a nice day. You too.